Hello everyone and welcome to DairyPod. I'm Rory McDonald from the Dairy Australia farm team. The dairy industry has been remarkably resilient both domestically and internationally despite all of the disruptive events around the world in 2020. In this episode, Dairy Australia's Industry Insights and Analysis Manager, John Droppert, discusses what the latest Situation and Outlook report tells us about where the dairy industry is at and where it might be heading. John is joined by fellow market analyst Michael Harvey from Rabobank, who has some fascinating views on China's push for food security and self-sufficiency, milk production in New Zealand, and of course, where the milk price might be heading. Michael Harvey, welcome to DairyPod. Thanks, John. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Look, uh, we've put out a, a Situation Outlook report um, just now that really talks about the, the two halves of the 2019-20 season, but also looking at you know, the, the real two threads of the story from an analyst's point of view. Things um, going much better on farm than they were this time last year, but obviously the broader economy has, um, you know, has been thrown into a whole new space with, um, with COVID now, which has been going on for most of the year. Um, Rabobank's also released a dairy quarterly recently. I mean, um, looking at a similar sign of picture can you, and, and, you know, the pressure on fundamentals, I think, was probably one of the key uh, points coming out of that. But um, how are you guys seeing in the market at the moment in general terms? Yeah, John, it's, it's, it's interesting times. I mean, no doubt, you know, the market's certainly in better shape than we first thought it might be at this point in time. But, we're, you know, we're still looking at the fundamentals over the next sort of 12 to 18 months and, and still sit at the cautious bearish end of where we think things could go. Now, you know, there's a whole range of uncertainties and volatility in the market that we're clearly talking about. But, you know, we're looking at a, a situation, John, where you know that you know, milk supply around the world's growing, you know, particularly across the export regions. I mean, we can talk about that in more detail, but that's certainly, you know, something we're mindful of. And at the same time, we know that, you know, COVID's clearly had a big impact on food markets around the world, particularly the food service channel and that's that's important for dairy so when you're sort of trying to take a, a view on where things go to from here we, we we certainly do remain cautious just about those underlying fundamentals because we think we there's sufficient supply in, in the system around the world at a time when demand you know albeit it's recovering and it will be a bouncy recovery um, but it, it's nonetheless still being impacted by you know government restrictions and weak economic settings so we we're cautious just because of those underlying fundamentals john so both, both of us are in Victoria, obviously, Mick, and, and one of the most visible things here is, is still the COVID restrictions, um, particularly in Melbourne. And, and you know, the, the limitations on food service being really pertinent to dairy. And as we've seen over the past um, eight or, or nine months, um, we've, we've really thrown the brakes on that sector, which, you know, had seen, um, had been a real uh, value generator for, for parts of the industry. At the same time, we've seen some really strong growth in the retail channel, um, mm. that people have to eat. Um, but as we sort of looked at in, in Situation Outlook a little bit, you know, we've seen some pretty big changes in product formats too. So uh, people buying larger pack sizes rather than, you know, convenience products because, you know, they're stuck at home and they've got time to cut the cheese. Um, some people are continuing to buy products they would have otherwise. So flavoured milk um, has, has really seen a lot of the gap made up you know, in the supermarket, even though, um, you know, your tradies and so forth aren't out there buying it from the, from the servo. Um, and, and perhaps there's an economic driver here too, around people being more careful with their money, buying the, you know, the, the, the higher, um, higher, larger pack sizes and, and lower unit costs. Are, are we going to see this um, way on unit value growth? You know, in your, in your opinion, the domestic market had been a fairly strong, um, you know, driver of value in recent years, and we'd seen some real premiumisation there. Is, 
is that something that um, Rabobank has a view on? Is it, is it something we're going to see undone by the broader economic pressures? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, John. And there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. But I mean, just start with, with the macroeconomic settings. I mean, clearly, you know, as you would know, and a lot of our your listeners would know, I mean, we are in a, a deep global recession. And, and for a few months there, most economists and ours included were revising down growth expectations for the global economy this year and next. It was, it was encouraging about two weeks ago when the OECD provided their most recent economic outlook. And I think they actually revised up their expectations for this year. Now, it was still a pretty dire number, but I think that was encouraging that there's uh, some commentators actually suggesting the economy's not going to be as bad as first thought. But it is, it is a deep global recession that is going to have an impact on discretionary spending locally and globally. Um, and that will impact, you know, you know, consumers tightening their belts. But I think one thing that I've certainly picked up, John, through this whole economic and, and pandemic crisis is that, you know, it is a good reminder how resilient dairy consumption is in many markets around the world um, because, it, you know, it can fit into so many different categories, whether it's, you know, at home cooking, at home eating, uh, whether it's a comfort food, those sorts of things. So I think that's one thing that you, you sort of take out of what we've seen around the world. Uh, but there's no doubt that there are going to be months ahead where we think consumers are going to be, you know, pretty tight on their spending because what we've seen certainly spending our time looking at food markets around the world is that we know that there's been a lot of government fiscal stimulus that's supported incomes and supported consumers that will start to wind back and there are going to be weaker economic, you know, settings ahead for consumers. So there is that top belt tightening still to come and that will see some trading down across the dairy casing markets around the world. Now that will happen at different paces and in, different degrees in certain markets. You know, Australia is a much more resilient consumption base, but we'd be looking at, you know, markets like Southeast Asia. And even in China, there's a, some evidence there where, you know, consumers are already trading down. Now, the encouraging thing, often they're trading down to lower value dairy products, but they're still consuming dairy. So they're the things we're watching quite closely, John, but we'd certainly be of the view that, you know, just because of, you know, tighter income growth, consumers are gonna be a bit more cautious. Absolutely. And we've seen, you know, the data too around, you know, anything that's related to kitchen or home cooking has, has continued to do pretty well um, in, in the current time. Uh, we, we talked globally, uh, we, you mentioned the, the global picture, and I suppose it's, it's a good time to turn to that really. And, um, you know, as we know, China's one of the key markets these days and, and what happens in China, um, you know, really affects, uh, you know, the broader barometer for, for dairy prices. It does seem like one market that's done um, pretty well out of the whole um, COVID situation in the sense that, um, you know, case numbers are flatlined and, um, and you know, it's, it's open for business in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Rabobank obviously has, uh, has exposure to China with Sandy over there and, um, and on the ground. Hmm. Um, what's, what's your view on China at the moment? We've, we've seen some increased buying, um, you know, talk of, of increased stocks being held, um, you know, and government push towards food security and self-sufficiency more generally. Um, what's Rabobank seeing over there? Yeah, look, Sandy Chen's a, a good resource for us on the ground, as you said, John, over there in Shanghai. And, and, and clearly we've got some views on the China market and, and happy to sort of talk you through those things. But the first point you'd make around China is, you know, they, you know they're first in, first out because of the, you know, the, the outbreak originating in China. Um, so, we're, you know, we're watching clearly what the food service recovery looks like in China. And it's certainly on track. Um, and if you looked at the national statistics that look at, you know, retail uh, turnover in the food service channel for the most recent months, it was still gradually improving, but it's still, when you're comparing it year on year, it's still down. But, you know, we what we do, Johnny, supplement 
you know, some of the, the national data you can get out of that market with, you know, some of the earnings guidance you get from food service companies around the world. And, you know, we pay particular close attention to things like Starbucks and McDonald's who have got big global businesses, but you know, obviously got big businesses in China. And some of those companies are still talking about, you know, the recovery being on track as expected. Um, you know, Starbucks made specific mention recently that they expected their business in China to be back to pre-COVID levels really by the end of September, early October. Um, so that, that, that would be encouraging. But you know, within that food service channel, John, that there's, you know, certain parts of that category or segment that perform better. So, you know, quick service restaurants are performing better than dine-in restaurants, not surprisingly, those sorts of things. So that, that's the first point we'd make that, you know, China recovery is underway and it's on, on track as expected. Um, but we, we're still a little bit cautious about, you know, the, the fundamentals in the China market because we do know that, you know, one, there's been higher imports or imports that have volumes that have come in above expectation. Um, and we're working to a scenario where consumption is subdued, you know, the, the aggregate demand, I should say. So when you net out the effect of a, a spike in retail versus a drop in food service, we still talk about aggregate demand being subdued in China. And then you look at supply growth in China, which is quite strong at the moment. You know, there is some farm expansion underway over there. Um, there is, you know, no doubt a mandate from government in China to carry more safety stock. So that's spurred on a bit more import volume. So when you, the modelling that Sandy does and the views that we take on China is that, you know, the, the food market recovery is underway. They are carrying more stock than they normally would because it's, you know, required by government and, you know, for supply chain security. Uh, but we do think there's some weakish fundamentals there in the sense that, you know, supply locally is quite strong, demand still subdued, and hence we don't think there's going to be, you know, really strong import volumes over the sort of the next six months in China. So that, that keeps us cautious about where things go to in the China market. Longer term, you know, you know it's, a, it's a difficult one to pick, but we, you know, you and I both would often be talking to farmers and, and they see the the heifer export trade and, and, and look at, you know, the, the efforts to, to build up dairy operations in China. And, and one of the common questions we get is, you know, will uh, will the Chinese reach a point of self-sufficiency or will there be, a, you know, a greatly reduced reliance on imports? And, um, you know, are we, are, we, are we taking one opportunity and, and, and losing another one in the future? And I guess, uh, you know, interesting in, in Rabobank's perspective on that at, at, at the present time, you know, we've, we've seen changes, we've seen, um, you know, as you said, increased... Uh, mm. Uh, the appeal of food security, you know, particularly in the shorter term, but is that is that going to translate to an increased um, pursuit of or, or indeed success in, um, you know, longer term self-sufficiency for dairy? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, John. And I mean, it's a bit of a moving feast at the moment, isn't it, given the geopolitical environment that we've got when you look at trade relations between china and key trading partners the first thing to note i mean i mean they're a long way off being self-sufficient in dairy they are you know the world's largest importer um, of dairy products and you know they it depends on how you calculate it but on liquid milk equivalents you know they're importing more than 10 billion liters of milk on an annualized basis so they've got a, a fairly significant deficit in terms of dairy. Um, so that's not easily filled by turning on the tap locally. Um, you know, they can obviously go on a period of expansion and, and, and close that gap, but that's not going to happen overnight. And it would, will require significant investment with some trade-offs around, you know, environmental pressures and those sorts of things. So that, that's one thing to note. I mean, the second thing to note, uh, I mean, clearly is within the consumer base, there is still strong demand 
for imported brands and foreign brands in the dairy case. So, and I think the Chinese government are mindful of that. You know, consumers do place a preference on imported brands, whether it's infant formula or consumer packed milk and those sorts of things. So, you know, that, that's something that, that the government in China would always be mindful of. And the other one is, I mean, clearly around their food security ambitions. I mean, you know, dairy isn't, isn't a strategic commodity for them you know they're they're much more focused on being self-sufficient in you know the grains and all seeds complex or some of the key grains and all seed complexes so it would require a shift in strategy so i'm certainly mindful that you know australia and new zealand over in periods of time have exported a lot of heifers into that market and it's been quite beneficial for farmers using that market you know we're not of the view that it's going to you know significantly close their import gap anytime soon but you know there is that uncertainty around the geopolitical environment at the moment and we are seeing a short-term spike in farm expansion in china which just means you know their import deficit's not as wide as it might normally be but you know you, you taking a 10-year view you'd still think china is going to be a significant import of dairy products um, and that's going to provide the opportunity for exporters you know structurally over a long period of time yeah, absolutely and, and i suppose turning on a slightly different track we're seeing a uh, um in another flush of, of European product getting into China at some really competitive prices. It's, it's something we've seen before, you know, particularly since 2014-15 with the, um, the Russia market being closed. But um, what, what's your network in, in Europe saying about the European situation at present? I mean, are we seeing um, strong growth in milk production or, are we, or is this more of a, um, you know, a COVID shutdown, um, you know, re reduced consumption kind of story that's playing out? Yeah, and that comes back to the earlier point, John, I'm around, you know, when we look, our models look at milk production growth across what we classify as the big seven, you know, and different groups will look at different, you know, production regions around the world. But generally speaking, you know, the South Americans, Oceania, and the Northern Hemisphere are the key production bases that supply into global markets. So we, we track production in those regions, as you would with your analysis, and we take a, we take a forward view on where production's going. So our current report suggests that, you know, we're going to see production growth growing across all of those export regions over the next 12 months, which, do, which doesn't happen that often. Now, there's always, you know, weather risks, there's feed cost risks that feed into, you know, one region potentially not performing that well. But right now, we're of the view that we're going to see production growing across the entire export engine. It's not substantially strong growth when you look at it from a historical perspective. You know, we're talking about the way we model the milk pool growing at just over 1%, which is slightly below the long-term average of about 1.5%, but it's still growth, sustained growth across that export engine for a period of time. And the European story feeds into that, John, around, you know, for, for a brief month there, production in Europe and the US contracted, um, and there was, you know, efforts by industry and by the co-ops to slow production to get markets more back in balance, but that was that was quickly turned around in terms of supply growth. So when you see the more recent numbers coming out of Europe and the US, you know, they, they, they've come in above, slightly above expectation and they are in expansion mode. So that's the challenge that we think the, the global market's got is, you know, if there is too much milk for the market when demand's still subdued, then we are going to see surpluses of product build up and that's going to put pressure on the dairy complex. And, and you rightly point out, you know, that clearly, you know, the European Union dairy exporters have been spending the last few years looking for new markets offshore, given one, they've had more milk to, to sell and they've obviously lost their key market into Russia and, you know, the Asia Pacific region is a key part of that. And we are watching quite closely 
what those you know competing regions are doing in terms of managing their surplus of milk and we are seeing a bit of a spike in exports of you know liquid milk and, and commodities into you know the, the asia pacific market so that's clearly something we're watching you, you mentioned the big seven and, and one of the big seven you know one of the bigger big seven in terms of exports is uh, is obviously new zealand and um coming up to or pretty close to their peak peak uh, period now we've seen um, in the numbers to August, at least, um, some, some fairly reasonable growth coming out of New Zealand. You know, after after years of, of watching these challenges build around, you know, regulatory frameworks and, uh, uh, you know, the concept of peak cow that gets that got talked about a few years ago now where, you know, there's, there's restrictions or, or disincentives around new dairy conversions and, you know, uh, more recently, you know, intensive winter grazing, things like that. Um, you know, in, in your view, is there... Um, have we got more growth to come out of New Zealand? Are they are they doing better with the same number of cows, or are they uh, are they sneaking more in there? I mean, what's uh, or is it just a winter milk thing that we're seeing growth um, spilling into August from winter milk incentives? Yeah, look, I mean, the winter milk volumes were, were certainly quite strong, and that, that, that's not surprising given some of the price incentives that farmers are getting over there. But as you would know, John, I mean, it's off a very very low base. But we're certainly of the view that when the combined spring peaks in Australia and New Zealand are going to be quite strong just because of where, you know, the, the price signals are at and where seasonal conditions are at. So we are expecting the New Zealand industry to have a pretty good spring peak. And, you know, the next six weeks are critical in terms of weather. But right now, the, you know, the foundations are there to have a, a good spring peak at the same time Australia's going to have a much better one than they've had in the last couple of years, which again feeds into that story around supply in the export regions around the world. But we would certainly note that, you know, this is not, being driven by you know farm expansion in New Zealand in fact we do some rural confidence survey in New Zealand like we do in Australia and when you look at the dairy results it just shows you that you know New Zealand farmers are still a little bit cautious about you know major investments in in their businesses just because of the you know uncertainty around environmental regulation and those sorts of things so that sort of feeds into that story john that it, it's not new farm expansion it's just the existing farmers having a, a pretty good year and that's going to translate into a good spring peak but you know clearly the weather over the, the next six weeks is critical most farmers listening to this will be um wondering what's going to happen with milk price and um you know for this season at least with you know some of the I guess the guide rails around the, uh, you know, the code of conduct and, and, and even, you know, the competition for milk, we've seen some, um, you know, some fairly quick action where, where there's been discrepancies opening up even between processes. Um, so, so this season would seem to be, you know, largely, um, you know, largely sort of spoken for looking ahead to next season, it's, it's a long way away now, but um, um, do you think we're going to be looking at a, you know, a still a pretty bearish market as we head up to next season's opening prices? Um, you know, we're we're still in in in, in long term average terms, we're we're still, um, you know, in a, in a fairly good point, a fairly good place price wise. Not as not as good as as some some would like or would need indeed, but um, uh, but in long term average terms, we're uh, we're at a pretty good price. Is that something we're we're going to see undone if if things play out the way you know you're currently expecting them to? Yeah, and that's just in terms of the short-term stuff, John. I mean, clearly aware of the view that we, do, you know, it, it's it's hard to see commodity prices moving a lot higher in the current season, which will be the catalyst to see, you know, minimum price offers move a lot higher in, in, in this season. But like you said, I mean, they're, they're minimum price offers, there's good competition for milk and that, that's sort of translating into, you know, certainly better milk prices than we were originally expecting in, in the, the, the export region in Australia. I guess when you're looking beyond just this current season, which seems to be locked away, I mean, 
there's a lot of uncertainty still, John, and, and a lot does depend on second waves and, you know, further restrictions and those sorts of things. But I, mean, I guess you'd go back to the basics and go, well, you know, most, most economists and ours are included are expecting, the, you know, the, the global economy to be in recovery mode in 2021. So that, that, that's a positive thing. Um, you're certainly looking at a, a supply situation in the next 12 months that's, you know, sustained modest growth, which is what we've talked about, but it's not, it's not exceptional growth that we see is going to lead to a significant buildup of intervention stocks or surplus stocks that, you know, weigh on the market for a longer period of time. So, you know, a lot of moving parts, but you'd certainly be optimistic that, you know, things, the fundamentals in the global market in 12 months time should be a lot better than they are right now, just because, you know, hopefully the global economy is in a lot better situation and, you know, the global pandemic's in, in a much better controlled environment in terms of the number of outbreaks because we you know you look around the world at the moment john in terms of where the hotspots are globally you know and you read about second waves in most of you know most parts of you know western europe and you know many states within the us you look at markets like brazil and india you know these are big economies with big population bases and they are very big dairy markets when it comes to the overall you know global supply and demand balance so yeah there's clearly some short-term risks around second waves and in, in, in daily infections in those markets, but hopefully within 12 months, you know, we're in a much better environment from that perspective. Absolutely. And, and we might even be able to go further than the local shops here in Victoria. <laughs> well, let's hope so, John. It's been a long haul. Uh, it's, um, yeah, you know, and it just, it just shows you, you know, how, how hard it can be to get things under control when, you, when you've got a second, second outbreak. And hopefully there's not too many economies that need to go through what the Victorian and Melbourne population bases have had to. Look, thanks very much for joining us, Mick. Um, we've really appreciated your time and, um, yeah, we um, hope that there's uh, something in there for everyone listening. Thanks, John. No, thank you for having me. Thanks to John and Mick for that thought-provoking discussion that, if nothing else, reinforces just how complex the world dairy market is these days. If you want to learn more about the Dairy Australia Situation and Outlook Report, head to our new and improved website at dairyaustralia.com.au. The website makes it even easier to find the latest information and resources you might need. Well, that's it for this episode. You can find other Dairy Pod episodes on SoundCloud or subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.